Welcome to the 4-2 Chemistry Podcast, Careers in Chemistry. We have an action-packed show for you today with three different interviews featuring Dr. Gerald McLaughlin, Stephen Ferguson and Aidan Heaney. We will begin with an interview from Stephen Ferguson, a renowned professor in UCD in the field of chemical engineering. Hi, I'm Jamie and I'm here with James and welcome to our podcast, Careers in Chemistry. First, we're going to look at chemical engineering. We're delighted to welcome Stephen Ferguson to our show. Stephen is a chemical engineer of over 10 years and is currently working as an assistant professor in UCD. Hi Stephen and welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. As many people listening might not know what a chemical engineer is, would you, would you be able to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so chemical engineering is uh, a discipline of engineering. Uh, where we look to design chemical processes mathematically and also to design the equipment for chemical processes. And that is actually very broad ranging. And I would say, make it even more broad ranging by saying that it's often paired with biochemical or bioprocess engineering that uses cells to make products where they're too chemically complex to make via direct uh, synthetic chemical routes. So uh, what can that entail? Well, it can involve anything from designing a huge oil refinery down to studying the way your chemical reactions synthesize your DNA or RNA, um, the nucleus of any of your cells. So uh, so that is the, um, so that's quite a broad, a broad expanse of expertise. So how can one profession or discipline possibly do that? Well, in many cases, we learn the uh, the we get we we learn the tools we need to develop any chemical process. So we look to develop skills in applied maths, chemistry, physics, computer science, engineering science, and so you have a very a very good background in terms of um, in terms of uh, in terms of disciplines to, uh, in applied science and engineering. And uh, so those are those are applied to develop chemical products and um, uh, in industry. So maybe I could give a concrete example. I think that might be more helpful than the very just broad, expansive answer. Um, so in Ireland, many chemical engineers work in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's our biggest industry um, in terms of our exports. And I think it's probably one of the reasons I think uh, I think economic growth in Ireland was the only EU positive economic uh, growth country this year, um, in spite of COVID-19. And this is because we we sell a lot of um, both medical devices and pharmaceutical products that are obviously critical in, in countering a pandemic. So a chemical engineer will develop, um, will be involved in developing the drugs at an early stage. So in terms of coming up with maybe the, the crystal form of the drug that goes into the tablets that we take, but also a chemical engineer will be involved in developing the manufacturing process and also chemical engineers will be involved in both building the facilities and running the facilities. So you uh, so there is a range of roles from basic science up to, to project management. And then finally, uh, a lot of chemical engineers choose not to work in chemical engineering. So uh, many will go into uh, finance, uh, you know, consulting, uh, various other di uh, disciplines in business that are starting to become more quantitative. I think big data and engineering techniques are are something that businesses are looking to employ more and more. Um, so I think is that a good answer? Maybe what chemical engineering is and what chemical engineers do? Yeah, 
That's great. Yeah. So what are some key skills you need to be a chemical engineer? And this would be key skills that that you would learn while training to be a chemical engineer or key skills you would want to develop as a leaving cert students, for example? Uh, uh, both, maybe. Okay, so I mean, I think in in all engineering disciplines, there's a mathematical element. So uh, engineers design things quantitatively, um, whereas many of the more basic sciences are more qualitative. Um, when you get to um, things that go out into the real world in terms of technologies for engineers work, um, you do want to quantitate things. You don't want, you know, to have, you know, wiggle room and, you know, how well, you know, how that bridge joins up to the other side. Um, and in terms of chemical processes, some of them can be very energy intensive. Uh, you know, if any of the, the very large manufacturing facilities for, say, oil explode, it's, you know, very, very, um, very, very impactful. So um, obviously things have to be designed robustly and mathematically. So mathematical skills are very useful. Um, however, you don't need to be the best mathematician in your school to be an engineer. Um, many engineers uh, don't spend their day doing calculations for the rest of their lives. Um, but it is kind of a prerequisite. There's a minimum capability in terms of, of mathematics. Um, in terms of chemical engineering, um, chemistry, uh, biology and physics are all really, really useful. Um, so you tend to be a bit of a jack of all trades. You need to know uh, the relevant physics, um, the relevant chemistry and the relevant biology. Um, and different types of chemical and, and bioprocess engineers will focus on these, these different aspects. So if you're uh, if you're very interested in, in biology or you have a grounding in, in biology, uh, chemical engineers figure out how to turn these um, uh, these types of things into into products. Uh, so, for example, antibodies. So maybe you, you saw that President Trump got a, a treatment for COVID where antibodies were grown in a factory. So they were they were grown in um, Cho cells, which are Chinese hamster ovary cells um, and, uh, and injected straight into them. Um, also, you you would maybe see the mRNA COVID vaccine, which is topical as well. Um, so that is a, a set, uh, is half bio process where you make a template, and then half enzymatic chemical process where you where you transcribe the the mRNA. Um, so these are these are these are skills that that pull in from multiple disciplines. So I'd say if you're generally interested in science, engineering, and ap applying them to the real world um, in bio and uh, chemistry applications, um, that is the most important thing. And I think the rest you can learn and develop over your career. And you don't um, you're not necessarily going to uh, be able to have the knowledge beforehand. Um, even at, you know after you do your degree or your PhD, um, you can be doing things from you know trying to, I think one of our graduates came back and gave a talk where he's trying to figure out how to make different orange, for working for a large orange juice company, trying to make the different uh, orange juices, or, uh, sorry, making the oranges juice from different orange sources taste the same, or, or you could be working on, literally working on a nuclear power plant. So there's, <laughs> you know, so I think an interest in technology um, and, uh, and, a, and a grounding in mathematics is useful. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming it's a yes answer, but uh, it, I'm assuming you studied chemistry for leaving, sir. And uh, if so, did it did it help you a lot? Has, has it helped you a lot in your career? Uh, no, I didn't study chemistry for the leaving cert. 
uh, and um, <laughs> that has been uh, no impediment to me in, in chemical engineering. And I, I do actually work on a lot of uh, more uh, difficult uh, synthetic chemistry problems. So my, my lab, for example, does direct synthesis of, um, of chemically modified RNA that are super stable and long lasting in the body. Um, so there's not a, <laughs> so I, I did not do leaving cert chemistry. It's not a prerequisite for chemical engineering. You do have to go and learn chemistry, but you can focus on on biochemistry and really then your your focus can be more on harnessing biological processes to um, to generate similar products. And so it's not not definitely needed. <laughs> Uh, so why did you choose to do chemical engineering over the different types of engineering, such as civil and mechanical? Uh, so I think I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. <laughs> so and, uh, you know, often when you you don't really know what you want to do, you do um, you, you pick something that can be very broad. Uh, and I didn't do that. I picked something that was quite a narrow discipline. So I'll tell my thinking at the time, I'll, I'll kind of tell you. And I was a bit concerned when I was at the sort of CAO stage about should I go for uh, should I go for chemical engineering when I when I don't have any chemistry. Um, and so I I kind of looked at the careers that were available, and I had found out that uh, chemical engineers get paid. Uh, more than any other type of engineer and also I have found out that chemical engineers get paid more than nearly any other profession uh, so that was uh, helpful so I thought getting a good paying job would be uh, you know from a degree would be useful. I knew there was loads of work in Ireland because of the large pharma industry sector and also I looked at the sort of um, research like so what does a chemical engineer contribute to the world like what do you push forward as a chemical engineer <laughs> and the answer was you know uh, renewable energy technology which is huge and is one, is one of two main focuses for our departments in UCD so developing next generation batteries solar panels all this sort of thing uh, has a huge amount of chemical engineering um, also, uh, pharm traditional pharmaceuticals where you make chemical reagents and, and biopharmaceuticals where you make, you know, antibodies, um, mRNA therapies now, uh, gene therapies, um, and actually the first gene editing therapy was this trial there, which is a, a different type of mRNA called uh, a CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas uh, system, which I think was the Nobel Prize this year as well. Um, so I think that, uh, so, but anyway, go, going back, you know, a long time to when was it, 2004? Uh, we, uh, I looked at all these sort of things and I thought this looks good. I, I basically thought I didn't give anything away as well. So I could have picked chemical engineering and gone on and done business or accountancy or finance, um, which are widely from chemical engineering. Um, a lot of the sort of big data techniques, um, a lot of them were developed in, in sort of engineering research. Um, originally um, in terms of control and trying to analyze complex processes um, in terms of applying them and they're now widespread um, for, for those sort of applications. So I think that would be even more true today than it was then. Um, and I think that was it. I, uh, I think, you know, so I, I didn't really think I knew. I definitely wanted to be a chemical engineer. I picked it because I thought that it was in areas that were interesting, areas where there was a lot of activity in Ireland. 
Um, and that I just said, all right, you know, you really, <laughs> I didn't really know any chemical engineers uh, or anything like that. So I just kind of jumped into it. Uh, for people who do want to become chemical engineers, um, what kind of uh, like careers and uh, paths does that open up for them? Uh, so I'll maybe talk about some of the, the, the graduates from, from UCD. So we have a nice uh, graduate pool um, that we go back to. And I think there would be, there's a whole mix um, from all sorts of um all sorts of careers. So uh, some people go on to study further. So we've some people that have gone back to do medicine afterwards. Um, we have uh, a lot of people working in pharmaceuticals and particularly uh, biopharmaceuticals. So there's a shortage of um, biopharmaceutical or bioprocess engineers in Ireland. Uh, we're making it, we've become a global hub over about the last 15 years for biopharmaceuticals. Um, in addition to our previous position as a hub for pharmaceuticals that are chemically synthesized. Um, so there's huge opportunities there and most of our graduates uh, right now are going there. Um, really any chemical, any chemical product that's made, any material, there's a huge amount. So there is um, people who go say work in uh, cement manufacturing. So I, I did my internship up in Irish cement in Platten and um, they, you know, I think the, that was a really useful uh, experience. So they, to make cement, they have the largest piece of industrial equipment. It's a kiln that isn't, well, the original one isn't much shorter than a football pitch and it spins and it essentially heats up rocks over a thousand degrees in order to make a uh, clinker. That, that's one of the ingredients in cement. Um, so there is also uh, a lot of engineers uh, employed in, in Intel, you know, microchip industry. Um, then uh, the food industry also, so um, the, and the environmental industry. So there'll be crossover with um, environmental engineering in terms of chemical engineers would often be the environmental engineer um, in, in plants or facilities. There would also be crossover with food engineering companies like Glanthea, uh, Kerry Group. They do a lot of uh, a lot of R and D and um, and a lot of manufacturing of sort of very high quality products for export and for domestic consumption. They would hire a lot of uh, engineers um, from biosystems, but they would also hire chemical engineers. Uh, as I mentioned, there's kind of a big, um, there's kind of a big range of, of, of topics, but anywhere where there's reactors involved that are manufacturing goods um, uh, for your biochemical or biochemical process, there are chemical engineers involved. Um, some people choose to go on and do, do other things. So, um, and I think maybe what maybe an example of the, going into the process industry as well. Oil and gas has traditionally been an enormous employer of chemical engineers. Ireland doesn't really have very much oil and gas. There's a couple of um, there's one oil field I think in Whitegate um, refinery, and there's a couple of gas fields that uh, thankfully supply a lot of the gas that we we needed to transition away from primarily. Uh, coal and support the you know support the wind infrastructure on the grid for the moment at least anyway. Um, so there was there was huge employment there. Uh, that has probably peaked, um, but there are more than enough uh, new industries that will come to take the, those those jobs. And Ireland, re, uh, Ireland's chemical engineers were unique in that they weren't really going in large numbers into into oil and gas anyway. And maybe a new industry that might make them up would be, you know, things like synthetic meats. 
you know, lab-grown lead alternatives, you know, the, these would be biochemical or bioprocesses that would be involve chemical engineers to, to scale up and manufacture enough to be useful for, for human for human consumption for more than like 10 people in a lab. Uh, so I, I think that's one thing. Uh, probably our, one of our most illustrious graduates would uh, be Deb O'Reilly, who um, ended up being the, the CEO of Chevron. It's a large oil company in the US um, and is involved in the, in the energy sector quite deeply and also is very involved in in energy systems um, and how they will transition and change over time uh, respect to um, research and uh, the Energy Institute in UCD. Um, there's also uh, people that have gone into venture capital uh, very successfully. Um, so there's another number of uh, VCs that um, have done very well in investing in technologies in the area. And uh, some of them actually have supported um, supported uh, awards and scholarships for our students to go and travel. Um, so that's so that's quite broad. Um, in between that, I think there's uh, plenty of you know you, the academic route where you can go and do R and D, and I guess I would be an example of that. Uh, you know, in addition to my colleagues, um, I think that's pretty. As a career, I think that's pretty broad. I think what I'll try and get across is there is a huge <laughs> array of options there, um, and uh, you know, you, you know, some people go into um, just choose to go into non-engineering uh, disciplines as well, um, in finance, accounting, etc. Or um, you know, as musicians or artists, the same way anybody, uh, you know, people don't necessarily engage in a career on the basis of their degree topic. Hey, so it says on your UCD profile that you worked as part of the Novartis MIT Center for Continuous Manufacturing. What's the main difference between MIT near Boston and UCD? Um, okay, so maybe I, I never really gave a background to my career. Should I maybe run through that? <laughs> as I, we, uh, I, The last question was on careers and I didn't mention oh. my own. Yeah, okay. okay, that'd be uh, good. So I'm from, I'm from Dublin originally, so I'm from Malahide. And uh, I came down to UCD to go to college um, and uh, I did an undergraduate degree uh, in, in chemical engineering and bio, uh, bioprocess engineering in the, in the department in, in, or the school, as it's now called, that I work in. Uh, I then stayed on there to do a, a PhD in uh, Brian Glennon's research group in pharmaceutical engineering. And again, I wanted, I thought it would be good to do a PhD um, and it was, uh, it's in an area that's of great use to Irish industry. So I thought, again, there would be good options in Ireland uh, for work afterwards. Um, and that was uh, really nice. So I started, I think I was the first person in Ireland to work on continuous manufacturing of uh, drugs. So the way... Um, the way um, the way oil and gas and large commodity chemicals um, are made is by a thing called continuous processing. So instead of having a little flask like you might have um, and you're stirring it or whatever um, to do some reactions as you might do in your chemistry labs, you basically have reactors that are specially designed to be able to, to have good um, heat and mass transfer. So it has good mixing of the reagents, can take out a lot of heat if you have a very aggressive reaction. And you just connect them all up and they flow into each other with pumps. 
Um, and so chemical engineering comes from sort of a, a gap between chemistry and mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering is know how to design equipment. Chemists know how to design chemical routes for synthesis. And in the between, there's a big gap in terms of expertise. And, you know, if you go back to 100 years ago and the founding of chemical engineering, the result, you know, or, or over 100 years ago now, uh, you, you end up with like very unsafe chemical uh, processes. So one thing that can make that safer is running continuously, and um, but also allows huge process intensification. So maybe one example we give, and I think my PhD, uh, you crystallize a drug. So you do you do liquid phase synthesis. So everything is dissolved up in a solvent, um, and then you precipitate it out um, to make crystals, as you might have done in your chemistry class. And then those those crystals are what goes into the tablet that you take for for your conditions. Um, so that's one of the that's a very challenging operation to do continuously at small scale. So I said I would take on that challenge from my PhD. And um, when you go continuous, essentially we had a, a 33 milliliter crystallizer. So it was this little engineered uh, see-through mixer thingy. And well, you know, the first time I ran it, I was calculating how productive it was, and it had the same output as uh, as on a yearly basis as running a 10,000 liter reactor, which is like you know, big chunk of a semi-detached house size, uh, 42 times, which is about as many times you can run do, do a big run like that over over the course of a year. So that was uh, so that was like a bit of an eye opener for me, and that became a big subject of research in the research centres in Ireland. Uh, about the same time as that, Novartis had uh, given MIT, which is a big well, this is a small smaller university than UCD, so it's a it's an institute, it's a very famous research, technology research institute that does do humanities as well, I should, I should note. Um, I think the, you know, it's about 5,000 people, maybe definitely under 10,000 people when all counted and UCD would be about 30,000. Um, so it would be more like, UCD is more like an American state school. So I went over there and uh, Novartis had given MIT about $100 million to try and transition drugs which use batch manufacturing, which is like your, your little stirred pot. Um, to continuous manufacturing so that you could make the, um, the well, when you do that analysis for all of the chemical steps, you can make um, you can make the world supply of a drug or certainly a region supply of the drug inside a single, you know, reasonably sized room. And I think there was a follow on project funded by the US military and the research groups I was in that, that made a, a factory that was essentially tabletop. Um, and we continue to make these sort of advanced um, factories in my group and we actually print uh, factories and factory components um, directly and then use them for, for synthesis of drugs now. So I moved over to, to MIT and it's, um, it's much more research focused than UCD. Um, so there is very few undergrads relative to academic staff and postdoctoral researchers compared to, to UCD, which would have a bigger undergrad um, population. So there's much more of a focus on, on the research aspect um, than there would be at UCD um, or really you know, any Irish university. Um, so that is, um, so that's one aspect. So uh, undergrads got involved in, in research um, very early in their degrees, whereas in our degree program, they get involved in, in research projects in their, for their final year. Um, and uh, and in general, it's um, it sits at kind of there's there's the university itself, but Harvard is just down the street, 
Um, and there's a, Boston is a huge number of leading institutions more generally. You know, Tufts, Boston University, Boston College, there's, you know, there's plenty you can name. And also a very famous hospital grouping that does, uh, you know, cutting out medical research. Um, there's also probably the biggest cluster of biotech and pharma companies in the world, just right beside MIT. So the, you know, there is this whole uh, research ecosystem around MIT, Harvard and these other universities that results in, in the generation of a lot of the, the medical technology and, and drugs um, discovered in the world coming out of that hub. So in, in UCD, we have uh, a, more of a manufacturing hub. So uh, we, we're a global hub for the manufacturing, but not the discovery of drugs. Um, so that has a different emphasis in terms of where, where graduates go. Um, and uh, but we do have, you know, quite a few uh, very successful emerging startups in, in this area as well. Um, so we would maybe be um, less developed with the with in terms of commercialization um, and more focused on, on undergraduate edu education um, as, a, as a university. As a student, I never went there as a student, but I had lots of undergrads working for me um, and there was a lot of Opportunity to get involved in research very early there, but again, everyone in UCD um, do, also gets involved in research just towards more towards the end of the degree. Uh, it's hard to, you know, it's uh, they're they're quite different. I would say UCD would be more uh, akin to a a large state school. I mean, we literally are an Irish state uh, university, um, whereas uh, MIT is a private institution with, um, you know. Uh, nominal fees of you know fifty five thousand or sixty thousand a year, um, so it's uh, it's it's the focus in Ireland is 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 in UCD is broader, and we're more similar to you know one of the University of California campuses or um, other you know University of Colorado or you know one of these uh, larger state schools. Is that helpful? It's not. It's a very difficult question to ask. <laughs> Answer. Yeah, that was, that was pretty thorough. It also says you worked for Biogen. So, what's your what was your experience working in a huge company like Biogen, and how does you how did your work differ there from research roles in universities such as in UCD? Um, so uh, maybe to give a bit of background, so but Biogen actually isn't that big a company, or at least wasn't. So, um, so it has a few thousand people working there, um, but it's not the type of company that has hundreds of thousands of people. And it had just expanded rapidly when I joined. So it originally was a spin-out company. So it comes from the start of the biotech industry. And we cut kind of the original company's charter uh, that one of the chemists took down from the original building, which was kind of an old factory that had been repurposed. And uh, essentially in the in the 1970s, there was you know this idea that we could use recombinant technology, which is uh, essentially genetic engineering of proteins to make drugs to treat conditions that can't be treated chem with chemical drugs. And so if you go to, um, uh, so that was, so that was, uh, you know, a, a, an idea that was, was popular at the time in research. And, and one of the areas actually in MIT where, um, where this guy Phil Sharp had, had started a company um, to develop essentially um, a recombinant protein products that would be like antibodies you hear about today. Um, that would be lab grown. And Biogen essentially spun out from there. Uh, it became sort of a research, sort of a well-funded uh, research uh, company, loss-making for a long time, and then um, developed their first products. 
which were relatively small. Um, so this was uh, you know, a, a number of things, uh, an interferon product, which I won't go into, uh, Tysabri, which was, um, was, a, was one of the first antibody treatments for, um, for MS. Um, and, uh, but just as I was recruited, they had got their first chemical drug in which was uh, for MS as well. I had a really, really good safety profile and really, really good efficacy and would just be a pill that you could pop to control your, your, your MS symptoms. And uh, so that was, uh, that, I think that was had peak sales of almost 4 billion a year. Um, the, the group to develop um, the drug, the chemical drugs is quite small in Biogen. So I was uh, recommended by the professor I work for in, in MIT um, to go over um, and uh, and essentially be the crystallization expert for for Biogen, um, and that was uh, was really good experience. So again, it was a small research team. Um, I think everyone had or nearly everyone had PhDs. Obviously, a much bigger um, age range. There was people at retirement and then people just out of uh, PhD programs and to a lesser extent undergraduate programs. Um, and so it was quite a small and very nimble uh, organization and we did a lot of outsourcing of, uh, of experiments in order, in order to have a small team that can develop, you know, a, a product that had um, $4 billion in sales and then follow up uh, chemical products to that. Um, so I think the difference would be it's less open-ended. So you in MIT or in UCD, we, we, we develop technologies that can be used on, uh, you know, generally to make any drug, you know, any chemical process. And there you would work on one, one or two or, or a number of specific drugs. And your goal is to make a process to get them into clinical trials, see what the clinical trial data looks like. This is a process that people were completely oblivious to, but I think everybody's very familiar with it as of because of COVID. And um, and then and then develop uh, a means to basically make enough of it to supply supply the world, and then move on to the next program. So it would involve interfacing with chemists um, who are developing the drugs, biologists, pharmacists who are developing the the formulations and doing a lot of the, the clinical work, um, and then also would make make the material to support the clinical work, decide what form the drug should be to go to patients. Um, and I, I thought it was, uh, it was quite nice. Uh, one big difference, the pay was much better. So I think, you know, uh, I think the, you get, it's quite lucrative um, working in that type of work. So, uh, you know, everyone was comfortable and also able to work on things that, um, that they were kind of passionate about, you know, making the next generation of MS drugs in this case. Um, so in, in some ways it was kind of an unusual work environment that was you know, relatively similar to a research environment in a university. Um, and I also was working on trying to get continuous processing um, uh, set up in, in Biogen. So that was, so it was actually very, so I was kind of hired as an expert to do what I knew how to do already. Uh, so the answer was, it wasn't that different, uh, but it had more permanency to it than, you know, a PhD project, which is an end date, a postdoctoral project, which has a set end date. You know, you can keep working at that for the rest of your, your career. Um, and so I think that was the, those were the, the main differences. Um, what, what has been the main focus of your research and work uh, so far? So um, there's, I think I, up on my page, I think there's maybe four aspects. So I do separations research. So I basically look at a molecular level. How can I separate uh, two molecules that are similar from each other? And uh, that would be one strand. 
And we do that via crystallization. So we will uh, change the solubility or the amount that can be dissolved in a solution to make one fall out. And you keep the impurity in solution and you keep your product uh, in the solid phase and you filter them, vice versa. We do the same with membrane processes, uh, distillation processes, a variety of other processes. Um, one focus has been to develop sort of uh, small intensive technologies that can be used for the production of drugs so that you can take these large scale processes, maybe invent entirely new processes and make them so that you can connect, you know, stuff on something that's a tabletop, but that can still produce large amounts of material uh, that will be useful to supply medicines. Um, so the whole uh, array of things that go into that, developing new um, reactors, separators, um, the processes themselves, understanding the chemistry and the physics um, in terms of fluid mechanics, etc. So that's, that's, that's one part. Um, there's also the synthesis and uh, part of that where you do the, the same toolkit as used to develop advanced synthesis routes. And I think something we're interested about right now is we're trying to make a way to, to synthetically make RNA. So um, I just had a student finish um, in January and she started a startup in London um, to try and, and make commercial liquid phase um, RNA synthesis methodologies. So if you can see like the, the mRNA the vaccine, I think it was you know, stored in a freezer. Um, the type of synthetic RNAs that we make, they are non-natural, so they can't currently be made via, via you know, um, made in organisms, uh, but you can change out the bases, put bases that don't exist in nature, um, DNA and RNA bases in there. And um, you can, so you could essentially boil these in solvent um, rather than, you know, be having to store things at you know, minus 80 or whatever. Um, they also mean that they can last in your body a long time and there's, there's a lot of other uh, benefits to that. Um, so that's another, that's in the same vein, but that will be on synthesis. Um, that sort of toolkit is relatively rare in academia. So uh, there's a lot more scientists in academia than there are engineers. Um, and so um, particularly manufacturing focused and process focused scientists, there aren't that many. So uh, we apply these to, to separation of complex bio products as well. Um, but also another project that I'm working on and we just pitched to SFI um, last week. And I think there might be a, a, a documentary on RTE about this as well. Um, we're we, myself and a, a chemistry uh, professor in UCD. Tony Keane have been developing a new process for the recycle of lithium ion batteries, particularly focused on electric cars. So I think maybe a talking point that you'd hear is that electric cars are, you know, what are you going to do with all the lithium and the cobalt and all this sort of stuff? It's more polluting. So those really never made that much sense in that after you use a battery for 10 years, you still have all the materials in the battery. Um, it may be slightly degraded, it may have lost some range. Um, but it's not like a, an internal combustion engine where you're, you've, you know, it's CO2, a massive volume of CO2 up in the air. So we, um, so we developed a process that, um, that operates what was thought below what would have been the theoretical minimum um, temperature to form LCO and MNC batteries. So it's a low temperature process that works in water um, that we can, we can essentially, uh, we can make um, the the lithium, the cathode component, uh, one of the parts of the battery. Um, uh, and we can also take in material that needs to be recycled as the process has purification power. 
um, and it is much less energy consuming than the current process. And we also think it can be modular, so it can go close to where the waste is created. And that goes to um, circular economy principles. And so that is a couple of benefits. So uh, we're, we're getting funding from SFI and the Department of Foreign Affairs on this. So um, the conditions around cobalt mining have been you know, questioned as being less than ideal. Um, so ideally, we want to use our cobalt as efficiently as possible. We've also engaged in the Fair Cobalt Alliance, who helped to upgrade the conditions in, in cobalt mining in, in Africa in particular, um, which is, you know, it is an important source of revenue uh, in these areas, but they're trying to bring up the, the standards in the, in the least well-regulated mines. Um, our process would, you know, drastically reduce the amount of cobalt that was required. Um, and also just allow us to reuse all the, the components. Uh, for somewhere like the EU, we have, um, you know, there are, you know, the, the minerals you need to make electric cars is not, are not really available in large quantities in the EU. So this recycling um, uh, will, will be mandated on an EU level um, and as a way of uh, keeping resources in the EU, which is a big manufacturer of cars. Um, where batteries are going to be the most uh, important component um, going forward. So that's um, that's another project I'm interested in. And then the final one will be, say, I do nanotechnology. Again, it's really just expertise from advanced manufacturing, synthesis and separations applied to different um, different topics. So one of my students is synthesizing nanocubes, which is um, tiny, uh, perfect, almost perfect cubes, or like 14 nanometers in size and also nanoflowers, which are these sort of petal-like structures that are comprised of multiple nano nanoparticles. And that's in conjunction with Dermot Brougham and UCD. And these have a lot of applications. You can basically make these magnetic and uh, responsive inks. And uh, one, one potential uh, avenue is in, is in bioprinting, so uh, the printing of organs um, for transplant or you know, testing of drugs and, and these sort of things. Um, so, but there's also uses in electronics, all sorts of all sorts of stuff. So it's it's very broad ranging, but it's a core competence in core chemical engineering, processing, um, and the associated simulation and modeling techniques that go with all that. So I think that's good. It's a very I do I'm doing a lot, so it's hard <laughs> to keep track myself sometimes. Uh, so. Of course, research is also always conducted with uh, universities around the world. And uh, out, of, out of these universities around the place, uh, what, what have been your favorite ones to work with? Yeah, so I've worked with a few and I also work with companies around the world as well. So um, so collaboration is a nice part of academia. And, you know, some of the skills that are housed in academia are, are so niche that they're not viable on the market. So like. Some of them are, some of them aren't, but um, uh, so really, and they, some of them can be so niche that you won't have an expert in every area in every country. So we really, as a, as a you know, civilization, we keep maintain this level of specialization and expertise by, by you know, having public funding of academic endeavors like this. And uh, we earn our keep by teaching as well. So effectively, <laughs> uh, you know, we're at, we, um, you know, we're, this is essentially uh, good because it imparts the sort of cutting edge to the next generation um, as they learn the discipline. Um, but also, it, you know, it basically means that um, that the that you know the the PIs have are very cheap to, and we don't actually charge for our time in, in the in the um, research. 
Um, so I've uh, I've worked for uh, worked with quite a few universities. Obviously, I worked with MIT extensively um, in my time there. I work um, in, um, uh, but maybe I'll start off with um, my work in collaboration in Ireland. So, uh, so I'm the the team lead for manufacturing in the SSPC, which is a, a science foundation Ireland research centre. So these centres are virtual centres that pull in people from <clears throat> all of the universities in Ireland. And, um, you know, they uh, and so myself, uh, colleagues from UCC, UL, Trinity will uh, will all contribute to this centre. And there's a lot of in, in Ireland collaboration. And in fact, I am also a an assistant professor in Trinity College Dublin in uh, sorry, an adjunct assistant professor in Trinity College Dublin. Um, in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, where I have a number of students working on, on drug delivery uh, problems. Um, so that is, you know, those are sort of collaborations in Ireland, and that's really important as uh, I think maybe one, um, maybe an anecdote, my, uh, my wife was involved in uh, the, um, the Fulbright Scholarship in, in the UK. So she's, she's American, but she'd moved to the UK, and uh, she was at the British Consulate in in uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just beside MIT, and I think they'd said to her that I think the research funding rooted through this building alone was the same as the UK, <laughs> and Ireland is obviously twenty times smaller than the UK. So being able to pull together this expertise from across the island is really important, um, and collaboration internationally is really important in terms of um, in terms of being able to contribute to wider discoveries, and um, particularly for for small countries, and I think the EU programs that bring together all the European countries are really successful in, in those areas too. I'd maybe highlight one one area that's like a really tight um, source of collaboration. There's um we we have a thing called a centre for doctoral training. So after you finish your undergrad, if you want to do more study in a particular area, and the one I I'm involved in, I'm the UCD lead for the. Center for um, Transformative Pharmaceutical Technologies. And basically this takes in a cohort of, um, of, of, of PhDs from across the UK and Ireland. So into a joint graduate school that is um, the SSPC, but pr uh, primarily Trinity College Dublin Pharmacy, um, myself in um, University College Dublin Chemical and Bioprocess Engineering, and UCC College of Pharmacy with um, with the uh, with the UCL College of Pharmacy, University College London, and uh, Nottingham uh, Nottingham University uh, College of Pharmacy. And so they take modules together. Now, before COVID, they were meant to fly to say London to do a module for a week, um, and then fly to Nottingham for a module. I'll get the train up to Nottingham. Then back to Dublin. Um, uh, we're hoping next year we'll have the the entire cohort in, um, including all our UK participants. Um, but you, they also do as uh, comments. There's joint uh, advising um, of people across the institutions, um, and so that's a really nice program where we, the Irish uh, government, have essentially bought into this 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 larger UK program, um, and that uh, that has been really successful. Um, so I've really enjoyed working as part of of that centre to date because um, it gets it incorporates educational impacts and um, and uh, also uh, and also um, and also the, the fundamental research. I think we had our, our colloquium there where you know students were, were calling in from London, Nottingham and Dublin to present their research works for you know a wide panel of professors and um, from the different institutions. And we also got or, uh, Royal Society accreditation, which is something that I wouldn't have done 
um, just as a just as, a, as an Irish academic um, uh, from both the Royal Society of Biology and Chemistry and also the Institute of Physics in the UK. So that was really useful. Uh, probably would have, uh, I think it probably would have involved a trip to the Royal Society, but uh, as being the year it was, it was basically me sitting in this room uh, also <laughs> uh, in exactly the same way. So maybe that, those are a couple of ones to highlight, but I think there, there's more I could go into, but it would take a long time. Uh, so what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to pursue a career in chemical engineering? Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly, it's fairly simple in that you just, <laughs> the best piece of advice I can give you is you just write in chemical engineering or biochemical and bioprocess engineering as number one in your, in your CAO form, <laughs> if you're in Ireland. Uh, and uh, then we really teach everything you need to know, and uh, then you go out. Uh, I would suggest you um, you research what is involved in chemical engineering. But as I said, my my own thinking getting involved is I didn't get anything away, but I also gained skill. I didn't give anything away in terms of going into business, etc. Um, but I did get a really really nice professional uh, experience, and the ability to go into research also was 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 kept in place there. Um, so that's probably the briefest answer I've given. Is that useful? <laughs> I think maybe make sure you have an interest in the areas as well. That's also helpful. It's hard to study something. It is a difficult program. Um, you know, it will challenge you. So um, if you want to be, make sure you want to be challenged and also make sure that you have at least some interest in the relevant areas. What is your favorite memories or uh, research project that you've done as a chemical engineer? God, um, there's been so many, uh, let me think. So I guess there's, there's a few, oh, well, yeah, I think there is, your PhD project is always dear to your heart and I think that was useful and that's led to so so much follow-on research that I, I couldn't really pick anything but that. There's also, there was a really good group of scientists and researchers in, in Brian Clemens research group at that time. And they went on to form a, a spin-out company, um, or many of them went on to form a spin-out company um, uh, led by Brian and one of his postdocs, Mark Barrett, that's now a successful you know, medium-sized company doing uh, pharmaceutical research um, or pharmaceutical process research more accurately. And, um, and so that was, uh, that was a really good time. Uh, and that, that really, um, that really uh, sort of, I caught the bug for doing research projects doing that. Um, and so I think that would be the, um, and that's how I got into it. I think when you're developing real drugs though as well, um, so I think, you know, MS is a really terrible disease. And um, I think a couple of the drugs I was working on while at Biogen had the potential, you know, had the potential to be cures, not just treatments. And that was, you know, that's, that's, um, that's you know, hugely, um, hugely fulfilling. Um, and I think that is, um, so I would maybe give those two examples. Maybe the other thing is when you're, so I, when I say I work on projects now, most of the work is done by other people. <laughs> so um, so there's, uh, I think I was at a, an academic talk where it's like, if you hear an academic say I, they mean we, and when they say we, they mean they, uh, because really you're, you're uh, coming up with ideas for projects, but really um, when you go in as a PhD student, you really get a level of responsibility that would be, you know, akin to being very high up in a, in a company where you're totally responsible for a, you know, a cutting edge project to get it delivered. Um, and being able to advise students 
um, and postdoctoral researchers in that respect is, is very different, but it can be very fulfilling. And I think my first crowd of students are going off. I think and postdocs, I think one is going off to help AstraZeneca develop their continuous manufacturing technologies. Another has gone to a startup. Uh, another um, uh, another has gotten a, a few really, really nice postdoctoral offers so far. I think another one potentially has a, a technology we might uh, try and commercialize over the next few years. I'm just going to stay in UCD to try and do that. So it's a very different, um, very different, uh, very different uh, experience. All three of those, but I think I, you know, I think all of them are are are, are valuable in different ways. Uh, so is that? It's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but I think that's. <laughs> okay, so uh, you would do lecturing in UCD. So we have two questions here for you. Uh, do you enjoy lecturing, and uh, what skills would you use while lecturing? Um. Yeah, so I do like I like doing lecturing. So we, um, so how, so I, I I was surprised when I came back how hard it was. So I'd been offered to do a couple of lectures in MIT when I was there, but I, I wasn't able to for some for basically timing reasons. Um, the um, so I hadn't really given any lectures, and I thought it would be like giving a presentation. So I um, so you know, and I you know, I kind of. On some occasions, I've done maybe like 20 minutes prep work and gone into, you know, present in front of, say, maybe 400 of the world's leading experts on a topic. And that was generally easy enough for me. Going in to teach third year uh, chemical engineering, reaction engineering is much more difficult than that. So uh, it's very, very uh, time consuming. And particularly, we have a lot of really good students in UCD, uh, some of the best students in the country. Uh, and so you really want to be prepared for any um, any questions. And I think to really understand something, uh, you have to, uh, if you can teach something well and make it uh, intelligible, uh, you really understand something very, very well. And so uh, that was, a, so it's actually, you know, uh, a very, very large time commitment to uh, formulate lecture materials. And, you know, um, and also the, the material isn't, I don't, I haven't necessarily teaching the easiest subject. So I have to do quite a bit of study the day before into the maths because, uh, you know, just to make sure I get it right, because it's essentially like doing a maths exam every day in front of 50 people who can all ask you questions at any point <laughs> uh, while, do, while simultaneously doing an important work presentation where you have to be sort of dynamic and interesting. So, uh, so I think that has been really the the area where my my competency has improved in my five years as a, as a, as an academic, um, and not something that I, I thought would be would be as difficult as it is. When I say difficult, it's challenging, and I think it's very rewarding. And maybe I'll give uh, a less mathematical example. So we do um, a design project. So I'm I'm the module coordinator for stage. Uh, tree design. I teach a lot of materials or have taught a lot of materials in, in design within UCD. Uh, and this is the, the design of chemical factories and biochemical factories. Um, so we, at the start of the year, we teach the theory on how to design the equipment, how to design the factory, how to be environmentally compliant, the economics of all this. So you're not designing plants that are totally insane from an economic point of view. But then we essentially give a, a one-line brief to the, the the class and say, okay, and I can tell you what they are this year. So, uh, the first group have to design a facility to produce COVID-19 mRNA vaccine for um for two billion people. 
So they have to do a full design of the factory, the process, they have to go through the patent literature, the scientific literature to find out the best way to make it, look at different routes. They have to figure out if this is a sane proposition economically and, and, and we get uh, professional engineers come in and we do uh, sort of sessions where they pitch the, the idea and, 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 get, um, and get feedback from us um, as if we're you know, investors in, in this possible venture. So, uh, so that's good. The other ones would be to, you know, build a plant to recycle uh, um, uh, to, to recycle uh, lithium-ion battery cathode material. Obviously, a project that's close to my heart. Uh, for I think a million electric cars a year, it might be two million even. Um, which is, you know, uh, which is a large amount now, but not what is going to be, you know, that, that you know, quite normal um, going forward. Um, but to put that technology in place. Then another group are have to design a plan to make non-alcoholic beer. And uh, and then what's the last one? Uh, the last one is oh, uh, green hydrogen. So this is an idea that you can make hydrogen directly from uh, water um, using renewable energies as kind of a feedstock because we need a lot of hydrogen in the chemical industry, but potentially also a sort of a long duration storage. And uh, I guess that will be something, a technology that will see how cheap it is as it scales over the coming decade. Um, but it has potential to make a significant contribution to uh, uh, mitigating or eliminating CO2 emissions. Um, so I think those are the things. And then we run through that. So I think that's a nice project where we kind of get to do this, uh, this sort of, um, this sort of uh, applied learning. And I think when you uh, think of colleges, I think there is, um, you might see like in movies and stuff, you have a huge lecture theatre and they're just, just sort of chalk, uh, you know, chalk and talk. Um, really the class sizes for us are small where they're below 50 and we, um, and we uh, um, you know, it's more, it's similar enough to, to a classroom environment and we do try and do as much interactive stuff as possible um, in the modules and that, that design project would be one example for, for our degree. Um, so I found it very rewarding and the skills are, are as I outlined, um, very specialist and, uh, you know, teaching is not easy. And so I definitely, um, I, I definitely, that was a shock to me and, uh, and, uh, I'll, uh, you know, and so I think that was, um, that was useful. So, but it's something I, I enjoy and it's great to be able to interact with sort of the next generation of engineers and scientists in that way. Okay. Uh, those were some great answers, Stephen. I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you for your time and giving us insight into your career. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Dr. Gerald McLachlan, who is a researcher in UCC. Hello and welcome to our podcast on careers in chemistry. I'm Harry Fitzpatrick, and today we are delighted to be interviewing Dr. Gerald McLachlan. Dr. McLachlan is currently working in U UCC. His main areas of research is organic chemistry. Welcome, Dr. McLachlan. Morning. So just to start off, just kind of wanted to give everybody just kind of get everybody in lay, lay, level playing field. So could you tell us a little bit about just what is organic chemistry? Yeah, so chemistry in general is kind of the link between things that are very, very small and biology. That's the way I think of chemistry. And then organic chemistry is really the, stu the study of one particular element in the periodic table, which is carbon. Um, that we, we use and we utilize a number of other um, elements as well, like oxygen, nitrogen and hydrogen, but it's mainly the study of carbon. And I suppose one of the questions I often get asked is how come there's a specific subject on just one element when there's lots 
couple of hundred elements in the periodic table. And it really boils down to the fact that with carbon, um, you have a huge amount of flexibility because the carbon-carbon bond is quite strong and you can make very, very complex molecules um, because of the strength of the carbon-carbon bond and the flexibility of that bond. So in, in evolutionary terms, then what has happened is uh, nature has taken advantage of this. Um, and so we can create very complex systems uh, based on organic chemistry. And that's more or less what organic chemistry is. Uh, well, did you study chemistry for the Leaving Cert? And uh, was it always a subject that interested in you or uh, did you kind of pick it up on the later stages of your education? Yeah, so when I was doing the Leaving Cert, there was a subject called uh, phys physics, phys chem, physics and chemistry together. So it was half of each subject. Um, and that really appealed to me because I like chemistry and I like physics as well. Um, so I did the, the combination. I'm not sure if that's still around. I don't think it is actually. Um, but it was a great, a great subject to do. Um, I have to say I didn't particularly like organic chemistry for the Leaving Cert, though. I think there's a lot of improvements we could make on how we approach organic chemistry for the Leaving Cert. Um, I think the syllabus could definitely be improved. So I didn't like organic chemistry at all for the Leaving Cert. In fact, I was probably in second year in uh, college before I actually got to like organic chemistry. Um, I suppose with a lot of subjects, you get inspired by certain teachers or certain lecturers. And um, I had a really great lecture in organic chemistry in second year. I went to NUI Galway um, and it just it's very, very logical. It all seemed to make sense to me. And so I really just uh, fell in love with organic chemistry in second year, really in university. Well, uh, could you give us a little bit of insight about uh, what, what exactly you studied in college uh, alongside? Uh... Yeah, so I, I did a, a general science degree, so I wasn't quite sure what subject I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked all the sciences. So um, in, in Galway and in, in most universities now, you can study a range of, you know, the scientific subjects. So I did chemistry, physics, biology and maths in first year. Um, I wasn't quite sure which of the four that I wanted to do. So um, that's the benefit of studying them all is you really try and create an overlap between what you like and what you're good at. I think that's a good tip. Uh, you have to like it, but you also have to be good at it. And they tend to overlap, I think, most of the time. Um, so I quickly realized that I didn't have the memory required for the biological subjects. Um, I find it very, very difficult to memorize, you know, hundreds of different parts of, a, of an arm, for example, or uh, different types of insects. Um, but I have a kind of a logical brain. I can generally work things out. And so the physics and the chemistry kind of appeal to me uh, much more than than, than biology. Um, I like maths as well, but I think the maths is very, very specific. Um, and so the physics and the chemistry I took on to second year. Um, and then I suppose I kind of dropped, dropped physics after that. There was a little bit too much computing in physics. Um, for me, I preferred the chemistry and I was kind of left with chemistry, I guess. Okay, so um, when, like, when you did chemistry then after that, so what would have interested you in specifically organic chemistry instead of, let's say, physical chemistry? Yeah, so organic chemistry is, um, the thing I, I probably liked most about organic chemistry was, well, two things. The first was that it's, it's very, very logical and it's, and um, once you learn the language of organic chemistry, it's almost like learning the English language. You can put things together uh, in different ways to make sentences, to make books. Um, and then you can create kind of you can create wonderful novels then once you have the basic building blocks. And organic chemistry is very similar to that. It's, it takes a while to kind of get over that learning hump uh, where you have kind of the vocabulary and the understanding. Um, and that's kind of where, you know, the leaving certain first year in college is a bit 
troublesome sometimes. Um, but then once you get that, then the sky's the limit really, and you can really do anything with organic chemistry. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is I really like the kind of three-dimensional uh, building something idea. So almost like um, architecture, if you like, organic chemistry is often compared to architecture. You, you build things in three dimensions. Uh, sometimes you just want them to look nice, but sometimes you want them to function as well, exactly the same as you would with a building. And so um, uh, the parallel between organic chemistry and architecture is really, really quite close. And I really like that idea of building things um, on a molecular level. Uh, so while you were doing your PhD, uh, did you get to travel to many different places? Uh, and, and, and if you did, uh, which one was your favorite? Yeah, so during my PhD, I didn't travel uh, much at all. Um, I suppose the, 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 the kind of problem with the, with, with the PhD in a way is that, well, you can, I mean, you, you can do placements, but really uh, my focus was to try and get it completed. So um, anything that deviated from that, um, I didn't want to go there, but I traveled twice for two postdoctoral research uh, fellowships. So one was in the University of York in the United Kingdom. And the other one was in a place called Tallahassee in Florida, so Florida State University. And so I kind of had it in my mind that I travel for my postdocs um, because they're designed in that way, you know, to get some broader experience. And so um, the York is an absolutely beautiful city in the north of England. Uh, it's quite a wealthy area, beautiful buildings um, and a really, really nice, nice part of the UK. And then uh, in, in contrast, then Tallahassee in Florida is, is, is quite an unusual uh, place is kind of just at the border between uh, the south of Florida, which has, you know, Miami and all those types of places and the very north, which would have places like George and Louisiana. So you're right, kind of at the intersection of two completely different cultures there. So that was a really interesting uh, place and very different from New York. And so I, I tried to travel as much as I could in my postdocs. OK, so what would be the um, career opportunities for those with a BCS degree in chemistry or organic chemistry yeah so if, if, if I was considering or if I was advising somebody on that um, before I'd even consider that I'd probably try and work out what kind of person you are um, first and what you really want to do in your career not when you're 22 but when you're 26 or when you're 30 that's the first thing I'd say to people so um, think about what you want to do after the next thing that you're doing and then that information will inform what you do next so but but to, to, to go back to your question, like what can I do with a degree? Well, um, I suppose if you kind of, you can do anything with a degree. So I, I would say um, the first thing to think about is if you're the type of person or if you really, really want to get a well-paid job at 22 years of age, well, then you're probably better off doing one of the engineering degrees like chem process or chemical engineering, for example. So if you do chemical engineering, you're a qualified engineer after four or five years and you go into the workplace um, you know, and you have a very fulfilling job at the age of 22 or 23. If you're the type of person that wants that, then that's what I'd advise. I'd say don't do a basic degree. Um, but if you're the type of person that wants to keep your options open and says, well, you know what, I might go back and do graduate medicine. I might actually, you know, work for Pfizer in a graduate entry program. I might do an MBA. I want to be a manager. I want to use my analytical skills that I've learned as part of my degree, but I want to do an MBA afterwards uh, uh, or I want to travel or so. And then I'd say, well, do a degree definitely do a degree or, if, you know, um, because that keeps all your options open. So um, in terms of what you can do with a degree, you can do postgraduates in anything. Um, if you, a lot of in the UK, a lot of people who do uh, degrees in chemistry end up working in finance in London. 
So th that's, a, I'd, I'd say, at least probably 10 or 20 percent uh, end up in the financial uh, industry. Not so much in Ireland because we don't have that huge, you know, finance um, cultural center, if you like, that London would have. But um, it's always an option for people. Um, the graduate programs are fantastic. So that would be where, say, a large pharma company would take you on as a graduate, expose you to five or six different areas um, and basically build you up almost like an apprentice system. And then you have, you know, the plethora of um, postgraduates available to you as well. So um, you have all your options, really. Um, the idea is to try and work out, you know, wh where you want to be. Thank you. Uh, and then after you got your PhD, uh, what, what drew you to lecturing? Did you enjoy teaching people or uh, and do many people explore uh, that career path after becoming an organic chemist? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to be a lecturer as an undergraduate. Um, a lot of my family are teachers and I kind of liked the idea of being able to turn, you know, a complex concept into something, into bite-sized uh, portions that people can digest. That was that was kind of uh, one of my drivers. But to be honest, the real reason I like lecturing was because of the independence that comes with it. So you're, you're kind of your own boss um, and you can you can research whatever you want. Um, it's kind of one of the fundamental cornerstones of academia is that you could more or less do what you want in terms of your research. And that really appealed to me. Um, it's an extremely difficult uh, place to, to end up, though, and I was very, very lucky. You have to be very, very lucky uh, to get an academic job. And the reason is because there's so many different points at which, you know, somebody can be better than you. So, I mean, you have to get uh, do well in your degree because you have to get um, some sort of um, fellowship program to do your PhD and then you have to be good at that to get yourself a postdoc uh, and then there's um you know it doesn't it's highly competitive to get your first job and then in, if you're working in the US there's a tenure track system so there's loads of opportunities to get rid of people um, and so it's really really difficult to do and I was very very lucky um, and I had some really good mentors along the way and I think um, that's the reason that I'm here it's because of the people that mentored me along the way and uh, not my ability per se. Uh, could you give us a brief summary of your day in UCC? Yeah, so um, the, the the thing about lecturing is probably, it, it isn't probably what people think it is. So um, I'd have less than 100 hours of lectures per year. So that only works out at kind of around maybe two lectures per day, one or two lectures per day. So we actually give very, very little uh, teaching time, we get assigned very little teaching time. Um, so research, the, the, our research and kind of maintaining momentum in our research is, it takes 80% of our time. Um, and there's a huge amount of paperwork that goes with that. Like you're, you really are trying to run a small little company. Um, you know, you might have a budget of um, half a million euro a year um, to try and spend. And you've got a team of maybe, my team would be eight or 10 people. And you're trying to, you're really trying to run a kind of a, a business and um, what you're trying to produce at the end then is, is you know, highly trained graduates, postgraduates and some publications. And, um, you know, th that's kind of um, the things that you have to produce at the end of the day. So there's a huge amount of paperwork um, that, that goes with lecturing and teaching is probably a small, a small part of it, certainly smaller than most people would envisage. Uh, but I still love the job. Thanks. So, um so you have a doctorate in, chemi in organic chemistry. How would somebody go about achieving that? And do you have to get it right after you get your bachelor's or? Yeah, so no, you don't have to. But I would advise if, if, if somebody, again, if you're thinking, 
if you're thinking I want to be a lecturer, I, I certainly wouldn't try and dissuade you from that. I'd say absolutely go for it. Uh, have a backup plan, though. Um, that that's what I would say. So uh, to, to do to get a PhD, really, um, the most I suppose the critical thing is to try and get some sort of funding to see you through the, the four years that it takes. So um, that requires usually then investment from a supervisor at some stage. Uh, and they're quite hard to get uh, those fellowships. Um, so you really have to get a very good mark at the end of your degree. I mean, an exceptional mark at the end of your degree really nowadays. Uh, not so much when I was there, thankfully, but nowadays uh, you do have to get a really, really high mark uh, to get the fellowship to allow you to do a PhD. Um, and you don't have to do it immediately after your degree, but I think um, it's very, very difficult to do any to go into the workplace or to go traveling and come back and apply yourself um, you know, to your PhD because it's probably a little bit easier than your final year degree program. And so you can you, you, you can reduce down the tempo a little bit. Um, but once you take time off, trying to invest yourself in a four year PhD program is extremely difficult just mentally. Um, so I would advise people to always do it straight after and then plan plan something nice after your PhD. Thanks. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the research area that you specialize in and what are the real world applications of? Yeah, so I suppose I, I kind of work in three different areas, really. Um, I don't know if you have time to hear a brief. Maybe I'll give you a brief synopsis of each one. And then if anything interests you, we can talk a little more about it. So um, well, one of them is called asymmetric synthesis, and it's qu quite a new area, really. It's only about um, well, it's probably 40 years old, really, in, in, in terms of really a sharp focus on it and involves making molecules that either like your right or left hand. So uh, this is the analogy that we use. You know, you have two hands, you have your right and your left hand, and they're mirror images of each other, right? So uh, they form a mirror, so and they're non-superimposable. So you can't put one hand perfectly on the other. And so if you think about this as a, as a glove situation, so your right hand only fits your right glove. Um, and so that's that's asymmetric synthesis. And what we try and do is make molecules uh, that are particularly one over the other. And if you make the wrong one or if you make a, a mixture of the two, that can have uh, significant consequences in a drug, for example. It can have disastrous consequences in, in drug systems uh, because uh, your biological system can tell the difference. So you need to make the right one. Um, and that's very important. And of course, the FDA and similar organizations require you now to just have one of them. You have to make the right hand. If you want the right hand, you have to make the left if you want to make the, the left hand. So that's the first area. Uh, the second area that is kind of just I've recently started looking at is more along the lines of green chemistry. So um, traditionally, a lot of chemistry was done with very precious metals like palladium and platinum, iridium, ruthenium. So they're very, very expensive. But irrespective of their expense, they're not very sustainable. So they tend to be mined, you know, in developing countries. And there's loads of socioeconomic problems with trying to sustain those types of metals like palladium and platinum. And so recently we've started to look at more sustainable um, starting materials to allow us to do chemical transformations of importance. And um, then the third area really is an overlap between uh, myself and some microbiologists. Uh, it involves um, interrupting communication systems that exist with bacteria. So bacteria cells communicate with each other and they coordinate their behavior similar to the way that we talk to each other or communicate over Facebook or Twitter or anything. Uh, bacteria do exactly the same thing uh, in their own way, and that allows them to, um, to coordinate their behavior to the benefit of the colony. So sometimes they build very complex architectures to avoid antibiotics, for example. So they're very, very clever when they work together. 
And so one of the things that we do is we try and interrupt those communication systems and prevent them from coordinating the behavior. And I suppose the real um, possible output from this is that we don't kill the bacteria. So you only disrupt them. And if you don't kill the bacteria, well, then the, the mutants don't survive. So there's no evolutionary pressure then for um, for, uh, you know, the antibiotic resistance that sometimes develops. So um, antibiotic resistance develops. I mean, we see this with COVID at the moment. So um, the, how, how do things evolve? Well, what you do is you kill a lot of them or uh, you have a mutant uh, that survives or survives better and then that repopulates. Um, but if you don't kill uh, bacteria, for example, um, well, then you, that mutant doesn't get to survive. And so the idea is that we could eventually try and and disrupt bacterial communications without killing them and thus uh, hopefully try and avoid some of that uh, resistance from developing. So they're the three main areas I work on at the moment. And with the uh, with the, uh, the the final area, would it be in the form of like an injection or like, or how would it work? Practically? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question because um, if you discover if you discover something interesting in chemistry or medicinal chemistry is really what we call that area of where you make something and you see if it's a hit, we call that medicinal chemistry. And actually discovering that uh, you're only one percent of the way there towards a drug. Um, so back in the 1970s, there was a very famous uh, drug discovered. It's now called Taxol. It's an anti-cancer drug. And they knew about Taxol for 30 or 40 years. Uh, before it actually made its way to the shelf of a pharmacy and uh, they knew it was amazing incredible drug uh, but the problem is is how do you how do you make it in sufficient quantities and how do you get it into your system and then the latter is called formulation and that's a whole other difficult uh, hurdles to overcome so whether you inject it or whether you apply it as a cream or whether you take it as a tablet uh, that often takes five years or more uh, to try and work out and um, so what we see now for example with some of the covid vaccines under normal circumstances, that's a 10 or 12 year uh, process, and that's moving as fast as you can. Um, so that's a, it's a very good question you ask because uh, discovering something and actually getting it onto a shelf or getting it into a doctor's surgery, uh, two very, very different things. Okay, uh, so someone achieves their uh, Bachelor of Science degree. Uh, what, what advice and what options would they uh, potentially have to further their career? Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to kind of revert back to kind of one of the things I said in terms of your options. So this is very important. And if I was a career guidance teacher, um, but probably one of the things I, I think about is you really have to think about what type of person you are. This is really, really important. Um, I mean, if, you, if you're the type of person that likes your own to be your own boss, well, then there's absolutely no point going into a setup, you know, where you're going to be part of a very formal ladder, for example, where you report at the end of the month to somebody. Um, but then again, if you really like that and if you want to be part of a team, you know, and if you if you if you don't mind be, or if you enjoy be working as part of a team, well, then that's a different kind of career path. So um, your, your options after after your degree are really endless. I mean, um, at, at one point at the, at the end of my uh, chemistry degree, I applied to Aer Lingus to become a, a, a pilot. Uh, um, one of the one of their programs to become a pilot and they looked at my degree and they said well that's you know that's great i mean that's a really good starting point um as i said if, if you live in the uk you'd certainly would have considered working in the finance industry in london if you did a chemistry degree um i was there myself and i saw i saw it happen uh, the analytical skills and the way that scientists brains work 
um, tend to be really, really useful, you know, in um, in a setting other than science. So, um, so I, I, what probably happens is, uh, you know, if 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 you're in if you're in a cohort of people that have all of similar skills, you know, and if you're kind of the fifth best at it, well, then that can be quite difficult, you know, to make your way along that path. But suddenly, if you pick up uh, somebody with a degree in science and you put them into a boardroom where everybody else is uh, is in finance or everybody else are artists, well, then now you have a completely new skill set and you can really add to that team. Um, so after a degree, your options are are really, really endless. Um, what I would say is just try and think about, you know, what kind of lifestyle you'd like and what type of person you are and then help allow that to inform, you know, what you want to do after your degree. So um, what kind of career you want? Uh, well, uh, thank you once more, uh, Dr. McLaughlin, for appearing on this podcast and, and for sharing your, your information uh, with us. Uh, we're very no happy problem. to have you. Yeah, it was a, uh, an absolute pleasure. And I'm, um, I'm delighted to see people being so proactive and thinking so far ahead. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic and well done. Well, thank you. Thanks. Next up, we have Aidan Heaney, who is a chemist currently working at Abbott. Uh, hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Oliver. And welcome to our podcast on careers in chemistry. Today, we are going to look at careers in chemistry, and we are delighted to welcome Aidan to our show. Aidan is a chemist who is currently working in Abbott. Hi, Aidan, and welcome to our show. Could you start off by telling us a bit about what you do in Abbott? Sure, yeah, sure, look, glad to help, right? So I suppose, look, if um, my role is kind of divided into primarily a technical role, so I, I'm a, a senior quality assurance manager. Um, my role in Abbott at the moment is is very technical. It's 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 um, I'm responsible for uh, labs on one side, but I'm also responsible for some quality system stuff on the other side. Uh, so I'll take you through the labs as well first, right? So um, the laboratory organisation, um, I'm responsible for divisional labs, which means I'm responsible for labs in Southern California in a place called Temecula, which is down uh, just north of San Diego. And I'm also responsible for the labs in the Clamell facility. Um, so what we do in, in Abbott Vascular is uh, one of the main products that we have uh, that, that I'm involved in is the manufacture of drug eluting stents. Um, and because it's a medical device and a drug, it's called a drug combination device. And as a result, we come under the regulations for both medical devices and for pharmaceuticals. And because we have a drug on the stent that's going directly into contact with the body, uh, we come under those regulations. So very much it's like a normal, ordinary pharmaceutical labs uh, that, that I'd be responsible for. Um, so if I break it down, then I'll talk about my, my organization in California first. Uh, there's three labs there. There's what's called a technical service labs, and that tests all the incoming raw materials, polymers, drug materials, uh, and various raw materials that come in for use in the manufacturing process. Uh, and they test for the labs across the division, across five sites across Abbott Vascular. I then have a finished goods testing lab in Temecula, which actually tests uh, uh, finished goods that are manufactured in Temecula, but they also do a lot of R&D work in, in, in Temecula as well, um, and, and they would do testing to support the R&D development uh, in, in, on that site. And then finally, I have a, a scanning electron microscopy lab, again, that supports the division, and the function of that is to actually support um, 
uh, some investigative testing that would be done across the division. So it could be failure analysis or, you know, and um, and you have um, various scientists working in that lab. They'll be very familiar with, with, with microscopy and, and those techniques. If I then move to Clonmel, uh, I have two labs in Clonmel. I have a very large, uh, Clonmel is a large uh, volume manufacturing site. Um, so I, I'd be involved, my lab tell, uh, tests a significant quantity of both raw materials and finished goods uh, in Clonmel. And then I have a microbiology lab in Clonmel, which will be responsible for doing all the environmental monitoring in, in, in the facility in Clonmel. And then also doing testing like um, bioborden and pyrogen testing on the finished product uh, to make sure that, that everything is up to, up, up to scratch from a microbiology perspective. Because bear in mind, these units are, are placed directly into the body. They, they're direct blood contacting. Um, so we have to make sure that everything is sterile before it goes to the patient. And then finally, on the quality systems perspective, I'm responsible for QA lot release. So we have individuals that their job is to review all the finished goods manufacturing documentation and do a final review to make sure everything is OK from a quality perspective, but also from a compliance perspective before the lot gets finally released for use uh, in the market. And then the very final section then is I have one person in, involved in quality systems and our quality system is really, really important to us again because it's a class three medical device. Um, the regulators are, are, are very stringent uh, around ensuring that we adhere to regulations. Uh, so we have forums um, that we have to review the data from our process and review data from our products of how they perform in the field on a monthly and a quarterly basis. And I have one person that's dedicated to gathering that data and running that meeting on a monthly and then on a quarterly basis. So that's it in a high level. There's a lot to it, but there's a, there's a, there's a lot in it. So I hope that answers your question. Um, did you study chemistry for the Leaving Cert? Uh, if so, did chemistry always interest you and did it help you in college? Uh, yes, I did study for the Leaving Cert. Uh, I did study chemistry and um, your question around, did it always interest you? Certainly did. Uh, even from a very, very young age, I was always fascinated by science um, and chemistry, uh, how things worked. And I mind about, you know, uh, be it the stars or be it, you know, astronomy, you know, or even, you know, uh, the most basic things. I always had that inquisitive mind. I always, I just tend to gravitate towards chemistry. And I remember I, I come from an agricultural background, uh, so I always had access to chemicals and I was always doing little experiments at home uh, with, with the chemicals that my father would use. Um, so um, I, I was always, always interested in chemistry. And actually, it's doing those little experiments at home uh, that kind of forged my career and, and my interest. So when I actually got the opportunity to study chemistry, then um, I, I, I always gravitated towards it. Yeah, always gravitated towards it. Uh, did, sorry, the second part of your question was, um, did it help you in college? Absolutely. Um, you know, when I went to college, then I, I, I wanted to focus in science and the chemistry, uh, my chemistry studies in, in up to leaving cert really, really set the groundwork. Um, it gave me a really, really good foundation going into college. Uh, I, I felt um, that that allowed it, it gave me a platform to, to further uh, understand um, the, the area and, and, and build my knowledge in chemistry. Um, what did you study in college? So in college, yeah. Um, so I suppose 
if, if I would go back to leaving cert, you know, I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. I wanted to do something in the science, particularly around chemistry. I was gravitating towards pharmacy, um, but I, I'll be honest, I didn't get enough points for pharmacy at the time. So I was going, mm, but but I was saying, do I really want to be a pharmacist? And and, and nothing against pharmacy. My, my brother is actually a pharmacist, so uh, there's, there's nothing against that, right? Um, but I wasn't I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And it was actually my career guidance teacher at the time said, Aidan, why, why don't you do a general, you know, chemistry and, for, and just kind of actually get your get your kind of find your feet in the field and then try and see as you get more into studying chemistry and science related topics that may force what you wanted to do and that was a really really good advice for me and 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 I remember what the guy said to me you know if you if you get into it and you do a general chemistry degree you can still always then branch into pharmacy again afterwards if you want, if, if you still want to do pharmacy. So um, I, I took his advice and I, and I, I actually went to, to uh, LIT um, and I, I studied, um, uh, it was a diploma in, in, in uh, chemical instrumentation. And actually, that's what really got me into analytical chemistry. I actually really liked analytical chemistry. I then went on to get an opportunity to, to do my final degree actually over at the University of Greenwich. At that time, there was this European uh, Erasmus grant encouraging students to go within Europe to, to, to study. So I went over to the University of Greenwich to do my degree in um, analytical chemistry. Um, and and that's what really forged my 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 interest in 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 pursuing a career in it. I would say as well then is as part of my my studies in analytical chemistry, I had the opportunity to study to focus on analytical chemistry, and my second major topic would be either environmental chemistry or organic chemistry. And I have to say there was about a hundred people in my class. Uh, I would say 85% of the people, 85 people went to environmental chemistry. Uh, I was one of the 15 that's decided to focus on organic, uh, which is really, really, really relatively complex when you start to study it in third level. But it was a master decision for me because it, it, it formed the basis of um, further education at a master's level. But it also was a really, really big help to me uh, in, in my career then in industry as well, having the combination of the two really, really helped me. So that's that's it. Um, what interested you in analytical chemistry and organic chemistry compared to physical chemistry or inorganic chemistry? Yeah, um, right. OK, so uh, when I did that general degree in chemistry combined with, 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 with chemical instrumentation, I found that, again, being from an agricultural background, I, I was good with instruments and good with equipment and good at fixing things. And um, I just I found that really interesting, the, the understanding the complexity about how, how these highly complex instruments actually work. Uh, and, and how they test things and things like mass spectroscopy, you know, how mass, uh, mass spec works, how it breaks up uh, a molecule into different fragments and that, that fragmentation pattern then, how you detect it and how you can use that signal to 100% identify a compound, you know, fascinated with me. And I found I had a flair for it. Uh, but I also found is that the knowledge of organic chemistry combined with it um, uh, really, really, really helped me. And I have to say, though, you know, even though I was really interested in the analytical chemistry, I had an eye to the industry in Ireland. 
So there was a huge pharmaceutical industry in Ireland. And I, I knew that the organic chemistry in particular would be a benefit to me in my career. And, and I have to say is that was a huge benefit to me. Um, I will say, though, right throughout my, 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 my studies, there was always an element of physical chemistry, inorganic chemistry, and always uh, an element of mathematics as well, which I think is really, really important, really, really important uh, as, as your career develops in within industry. And on the mathematics part of it, I would my advice to you guys when, when you're looking for a course in science is have something that has strong um, statistical techniques as well, because you know general knowledge of statistics is really really important in industry, and I, I use it almost every day. I've just come from a meeting which was heavily around use of statistical techniques in, in to interpret data. So having a course that has that. Uh, statistical element from from a mathematics perspective uh, is really really important as well. Okay. Uh, during your degree, was there any uh, opportunity to carry out a placement in a pharmaceutical company? Uh, there wasn't, right? And I know at that time I was uh, kind of would I go to Waterford or go to to LIT? Uh, that was there wasn't an opportunity for me to do a placement, and it was a huge disadvantage to me when I actually got my degree, because I always found is when you're a graduate coming out of college, right? And now you have all these fancy qualifications, right? And you're coming out saying, aren't I great, right? But you are a graduate with no industry experience. I found when I was going for interview, it was a real disadvantage, you know? And I found then that, you know, when, when I finished my degree in London, um, I, I, I wanted to stay on for social reasons more than anything. I really enjoyed living in London. So I, I wanted to get a job in, in London in, in the industry. I found it difficult enough, right, going to interview. Um, but eventually, once once I got over that and I got my first job, then I was off, right, and my career really took off. Um, but it was, I would definitely strongly recommend if you have a placement or the opportunity to get a placement um, is, is, a, is a distinct advantage. Um, when, when, you're, when you're doing your third level studies. And I have to say, it's something that Abbott uh, participates in and encourages in. Uh, and I always take a keen interest. Uh, would you believe next Monday, uh, we have a, a student joining us for a couple of months and joining my lab in Clonmel for a couple of months. And it's something I participate in every year because I, I like to help uh, a student in that area uh, at least uh, every year. So yeah, I, I, I definitely, uh, I didn't have it, but it was a distinctive disadvantage when I, when, I, when I graduated. After college, you completed a master's in industrial pharmaceutical science. Is there a specific process to applying for this type of master's? For example, is chemistry a requirement and is funding required? So a uh, very good question, right? Uh, so there's a couple of elements to this, right? Um, so is there a specific process? Yes, there is, right? Um, so the industrial pharmaceutical science uh, uh, course is a really, really good course, um, very focused on, on the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and how pharmaceuticals work in the body. And it's to, it's to allow you to act as what's known as a qualified person within the pharmaceutical industry. And a qualified person in the pharmaceutical industry is the this is the last person that is responsible for releasing the batch to the to to to, to the customer, right? And it's a, it's a legal requirement, right? Um, so for me, it was around is you had to have a science related qualification, uh, 
pr preferably uh, a BSc in 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 chemistry. So that was a distinct advantage when it came to applying for that course. But also, you needed industry experience as well. So um, I, I had obviously bought in in buckets, so I, I was well able to get into it. And the beauty about this is is Abbott encourages. Uh, employees to further develop their career and further um, um, participate in, in in education. And Abbott actually funded the course for me, right? Um, so it, it, so I had Abbott prepared to fund me to do this course, and I had the necessary prerequisites to 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 join the course. I.e., I had my degree in a science-related discipline, and I had the industry, the, the relevant industry um, experience. Um, so absolutely seemed like a no-brainer. Um, very difficult st studying a master's part-time though, a lot different to being a full-time student. So, but I'm absolutely glad that I did it because again, what this course did is it took my industry experience, my existing qualifications, and it brought my knowledge to a new level again to further, further, further improve my career. And I'd say chemistry and organic chemistry was a distinct advantage as I got into studying for for my um, for my for my master's in industrial pharmaceutical science as well. Could you walk us through maybe a typical working day for you, maybe pre-COVID and during COVID? Uh, Pre-COVID, uh, I suppose. Now it's like what I'm talking to you today. I'm, I'm talking to you today from from my house, right? And uh, and I'm I'm running my my labs across the globe from from my house here in, in Tipperary, right? Um. So the the main difference, anyway, is is it's all run from my computer here, and I do WebEx and things like that, and I I I, I do these Teams meetings with with my team um, across the globe, right? Um. I'd say. There's, a, there's an element of structure to my day, right? So when, when I come in in the morning, um, I, I start at 7.30, and the reason I start at 7.30 is I want to see emails from, from the previous night to catch up before we go into the morning meetings. When I think then from 8 o'clock to uh, quarter to 9, there's morning meetings in each of the different areas that I attend. And what I try to get from those morning meetings is, is, is okay, look at the flow of, of lots into the lab and look at flow of lots out of the lab, is our cycle time OK? Is there any technical issues in any of those labs that might need some further attention by me? Um, then it's uh, a quick cup of tea and it's from nine to ten. I will always have uh, regular one to one meetings with my direct reports. It's really, really important to me that every week I meet my direct reports across the globe one to one uh, and to go through how, how they're performing and how, 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 how the business is performing in their area. Um, then from about that brings me up to about ten o'clock from ten to twelve. Then there's generally in Clan Mel, there's a uh, there's either technical meetings dealing with some of the technical issues or some of the projects in Clonmel, or there could be management meetings around the business, right? So, you know, running labs across uh, multiple sites um, is, is an expensive business uh, and it's, it's, it's a, there's million dollar budgets involved, right, that I manage. Um, so it's important that I manage that business carefully. Um, and and there's there's responsibilities that I have to the business and reporting how I'm performing financially, but also how my labs are performing. Is the cycle time? Are we getting through the testing in the right time? Is there any variation in the data that we need to be concerned about? Um, and, and elements like that, right, that we'll have. 
After lunch, then, um, generally, I, I would have things to report, uh, to review. I generally have documents coming my way. There might be uh, new analytical methods that might be revised that I'd have to review and sign off on. There might be major changes in the organization that can't proceed without I signing off on. I would usually spend my time in the afternoon then um, uh, focusing on that. Uh, I'm also working on a project at the moment, uh, and, and I'm leading out the project uh, for, for Abbott Vascular International, where we're building in, bringing in a new software system for the labs across medical devices. So multiple sites bringing in this software system. And I work a lot with my colleagues in Minnesota on that. They come online around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So what I try to do is focus on 2 o'clock until 4 o'clock. Uh, working with, with my colleagues uh, in that time zone and doing whatever I need to do in that project within that time zone. And then California, my, 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 my team in California come online at 4 p.m. my time. So then I generally tend the next two hours. So from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. I work with, with, with my team is dedicated to my team in California. And then at 6 p.m. It's, it's time to go home because I started at 7.30. But I do finish at, at 3.30 every Friday rigidly so uh, and COVID it's not very different is like uh, what what I've missed about pre-COVID is I enjoyed getting over to California I enjoyed getting over to Minnesota um, I enjoyed talking to people face to face and seeing it um, I also enjoyed uh, the morning meetings where all my team would be standing around the board uh, talking about how they performed and I like talking face to face to my team. Uh, I do a lot of management by walking is called. I, I like to walk around and talk to my team um, and, and, and not just my direct reports. Uh, I found that more difficult post COVID where it's more in person and it's more WebEx, it's more Microsoft Teams conversations. So, um, but I can still effectively run my business uh, from my house, right? Thanks to technology. So hope, hope that answers your question. What advice would you give to someone who is looking to pursue a career in the phar pharmaceutical industry as a chemist? So as a chemist, uh, I would say is a couple of things is, um, you know, keep your options open as you go into third level. A little bit like what, what, what my career guidance teacher gave me when I was a little bit unsure where I go. Uh, you know, make sure that whatever course you go to, just make sure that you're not diving in straight away because when you go into third level and you start specializing in areas like biochemistry or you know biotechnology or you might start to you know actually I didn't really like physical chemistry in, in, in school but as you start really getting into it in as a discipline in college you might find that actually no I kind of like this um, and then uh, make sure you have the options that you can you know you know get into your chosen field once you graduate. Um, I would say then is a work placement is a huge advantage, right? That will definitely be an advantage uh, once you go into, into in, 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 once, you, once you graduate and you start looking for a role. Um, and I'd say is having the blue chip company on your CV is no help. And when I mean by the blue chip company, I mean the Abbott, the Boston Scientific, the Pfizer's of these worlds, right? And having them on your CV is also a bit of an advantage, right? Um, and then finally, I'd say is, you know, your career is something that that evolves over time, right? You know, I've been very lucky in my career. Every company I've joined have been interested in investing in me and investing in my career. It's almost been mutually beneficial. Um, make sure that, you know, get into a company 
that's interested in you developing and is 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 interesting interested in investing in you developing um, and um, you know that's really 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 important and then the final thing i would say is my advice to people about pursuing a career is don't be afraid to take a chance right uh, you know once you get it like i used the example i said to you guys is you know when i was studying for my final degree i had the option to major in environmental chemistry with, with, with chemical instrumentation or organic chemistry with chemical instrumentation. I'll be honest with you, the easier option was environmental chemistry and I probably would have got a higher grade in it. But I actually took the more difficult option because I wanted to set me up for success in industry, right? So don't always, don't always think, take the easy option, the near-term easy option. Um, think about long-term. Okay, this might be a bit harder to study. You know, maybe I might end up with a two-one as opposed to a first. But is this path that I'm taking is it better for me for where I want to go in my career? Um, and I think about thinking that long term. I would say to people then when they start off, then when they get their foothold on the career ladder, you know, you gain. I, I, uh, you might be tempted to, you know, stay in a place or stay in a role for longer than you should because it's easier and it's more comfortable, right? I always challenge my people to go into what I call the zone of productive discomfort. So that's it, you know, if you're comfortable in an area, well, maybe you need to try and move and try something different. Maybe within role or maybe within the company that will that you'll learn something and that you'll, 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 you'll keep building on your career. So a career isn't something that you know, that stops once you get your degree and then you get your job and then you're done. It's something that you need to complete, complete, uh, continue to build on. Both in-role experience and further education can augment that. So I, I hope that answers your question. It's a long-winded answer to your question, but it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's from my perspective anyway. Hey, thank you, Aidan, for joining us today. It was great to see an insight into what your job is like. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Okay. Thank, thanks very much. A big thank you for all our interviewers, interviewees and students, as well as our teacher, Miss Wise, for putting this show together. Be sure to listen to all the other class shows on Rockass.